Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, let's turn to Maria Tadeo. She is an EMEA reporter for uh, Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Television. She joins us on the phone from Brussels. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Give us your thoughts on what we heard from uh, uh, Speaker uh, Berkow this morning. That's right. So essentially, uh, there was a lot of hype built into this, but I think it's not been surprising that he's decided the vote cannot happen today, just purely on the basis that it's so similar to what was presented and delayed on Saturday, and therefore there is no meaningful vote today, which, to kind of just strip away the jargon, it basically means the Brexit deal, which was agreed between the UK and the EU last week on Thursday after a very long, very difficult negotiation cannot be voted today. And of course, the tricky bit on this is that that deal between the EU and the UK is worth nothing unless it can clear the House of Commons. We've been here before many times. It's been rejected many times. And the issue here, of course, is that we're running up against a very hard deadline, which is October 31st for the UK to crash out without a deal. Indeed, this does seem like the expected outcome as the pound is now basically unchanged uh, from before the vote. So I guess that, Maria, what will it take for markets to be surprised here? Because it seems to be uh, baked in that Parliament will debate this. Some people might raise a couple issues. It might get tweaked and then people will vote and it will go through as planned. Exactly. And I think there's a number of things um, that are being priced in and to Sterling now. And based on the analysts that I've spoken to today, they point to two things. And one is the fact that it does seem that the prime minister uh, may not have the votes he needs now, but they do feel he will get them at one point. So this is the closest we've actually ever been to the deal passing. And then the other issue, which is also very apparent now, is the fact that the threat of a no-deal Brexit also seems very unlikely because the Europeans could deny time. They could deny an extension. In principle, they all have to agree to it. And if they didn't want to, they would say, well, I'm sorry, but you don't get more time and you crash out. But the reality is when you look at every single European summit that we've covered every time we've been here, the Europeans don't want to be blamed for a no-deal Brexit. They don't want to push a prime minister who's close to perhaps getting this deal and force everyone into a chaotic exit from the EU. They always said the best way to leave is with a deal. So the market is looking at those two things. A prime minister that is edging closer to winning the vote, even if it was delayed on Saturday and it's been delayed again today, but also the fact that the EU will probably give more time and they don't want to go no deal either. So Maria, what uh, we, we did not get a vote today, clearly. Um, what are our next steps, would you say, over the next several days? Well, there's a huge bill that the government needs to put forward, which is all the legislation going into Brexit. And there's also a possibility for other MPs to try to amend that deal. And that's perhaps when it gets difficult for the government, because one of the things that the uh, Boris Johnson has said is that he does not want to be put in a position where his deal gets amended so many times that it becomes meaningless. So that is uh, a, perhaps a source of tension there. And of course, we also know that he's trying to push for a general election. And that is, again, another factor that the market has priced down into Sterling, which is the fact that if we do go to a new election, although the situation is very volatile, the polls would suggest that he would increase his majority and that makes passing anything much more easy.
So I want to talk about the theatrics of this because John Burko is a genius when it comes to the theatrics. His voice absolutely has the right inflections. I loved how right before he made the decision, he paused. He castigated someone for, uh, for, 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 for delaying him, but he paused and he, you know, really uh, laid it out uh, and, and, you know, with perfect timing. How, how has this sort of event risen him in a way that he hadn't previously uh, been? I mean, who is John Burko? I mean, he he has definitely uh, become a star, and 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 everyone knows who this man is. But also, I think the fact that he has become so well known has also put him on the spot. And there is a lot of criticism in terms of what is driving his uh, decisions and his motivations. And I'm sure you know just as well as I do that in many occasions he's been criticized for being seen as too remaining, as allowing the remaining side of the parliament. You to should, have a by the way. You should trademark that remaining, but go on. <laughs> but um, and and that has become an issue, and and it's and it's obviously an obstacle today for the prime minister to put this vote um, quickly to a vote, which he wants to do. But it was also an issue for Theresa May. And you're right; there's a lot of optics, there's a lot of uh, theatrical moves that we see, and we saw also a lot of um, optics on Saturday when the prime minister sent out three letters, which essentially contradicted each other to the EU. One in which he asked for more time, then another one in which he said, "I actually." don't want more time. And then a third one in which he said, if I do get an extension, it's going to be bad for us both. So I think we're used to this. And what it highlights is, A, this is still a country that's very divided. But two, uh, there's many scenarios that could still play out. And of course, you have the, the, the general election, which is still very much looming on everyone. So everyone wants to be seen as fighting for something. And for the EU, I guess at this point, after three years of a lot of back and forth, they're just not surprised by any of this anymore. They do think that this is almost a country that has become so difficult to read and there is no clarity coming out of um, the parliament. What is interesting for, for the EU side, however, is that the perception around Brexit has really changed. At the start of the year, you could hear many voices who still felt Brexit could be undone, who still pushed for a second referendum. But at this point, you do get a sense that the Europeans just want to get it done with, especially because there is a new commission, there is uh, a different set of priorities and, and a different agenda, and they feel like right now is probably the time to move on. All right. Finally, Maria, just quickly, um, is October 31st a real date or do you think there will be an extension beyond that? Well, the truth is, when you look at Brexit, all of these uh, deadlines have become completely meaningless. They, the, every time we've been in a make-or-break moment, there's been more time granted. If you look at the legislation now, and if you, you look at uh, UK law, well, the UK would crash out without a deal in a week's time if it doesn't get that extension. The question is, would that extension, which has now been asked, would, it, would that be rejected by the Europeans? Well, you heard from Emmanuel Macron and Jean-Claude Juncker, the head of the European Commission last week, that they do not see a need for more time because there is a new deal that works for everyone. But the reality is, if you don't give more time, the UK would crash out, and that's something that nobody wants. I guess the debate is around the length of the extension. Do you just go for a short technical extension in the hopes that that can focus everyone's minds and get the legislation you need in order to leave, or do you actually go, well, you know, we need more time, and then that opens many other scenarios, such as, you know, the vote, the people's vote, second referendum and so on. But it's tricky for the Europeans because they do not want to be seen as interfering in the politics. Maria Tadeo, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're very busy in Brussels right now with all that's going on, but thank you so much. Uh, Maria covers the uh, Europe uh, for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Brussels.
Well, it looks like the U.S. and China are making some headway on what is being coined a phase one type of trade deal. To get the latest, uh, we welcome Troy Gajewski, partner, co-chief investment officer, senior portfolio manager at Skybridge. So, Troy, again, looks like there is sub-movement. We're having trade delegations go back and forth. What is your sense of how the U.S.-China trade negotiations are going right now? Well, the good news is it looks like there's at least a short-term detente, and that was really being priced into markets a week ago in terms of the left tail. The probability of an escalation or a significantly negative outcome went down, and that's why you saw markets rally. Because we think what's going on here is markets are trying to focus on the fact that both for the U.S. and China, uh, clearly they're both interested in having some type of uh, lack of deterioration and at least a face-saving deal focused on agriculture and energy, and then pushing back the thornier issues of IP theft and SOE support into the post-2020 election. And so we don't think that the coast is necessarily clear but the probability of dramatic escalation has gone down significantly, which we think uh, has led to the rally in markets late last week. Are you buying or selling anything based on that development? Well, yeah. So from our perspective on the margin, you know, a, a trade reconciliation or at least lack of escalation should lead to a steeper yield curve, which should lead to better NIM, which should lead to better bank credit quality. So we, we have a significant exposure in regional community bank credit. And when we're looking into next year, a lot of the focus on the outcome will be do interest rates continue to drop or do at least stabilize here. And so certainly a right tail outcome or, or at least less escalation will lead to better growth, better earnings, better NIM, which means we'll more than likely continue to run those exposures as opposed to cutting them. So Troy, from the perspective of China, what do you think the calculus is for China right now? That seems like, you know, we were close to a deal earlier in the year that might have had a little bit of meat on the bone, but now both sides seem to have pulled back. Do you think that they are, let's do a deal now, even if it's a light deal, or let's just push it to 2020? Well, look, I, I, from, there's two calculus, right? There's the Trump calculus and the China perspective, right? And, you know, as time has gone on, we think it's become clearer and clearer to China that, you know, if Trump loses re-election, right, then they're going to have to deal with Warren, Pelosi, and Schumer, who are far more hawkish on China than even Trump. And to give Pelosi and Schumer credit, their entire political careers, they've been hawkish on China in terms of trade and the impact on the middle and the working class. And, and now, you know, there's basically a non-elite bipartisan consensus that China has to be addressed. It's one of the, the few areas of, of bipartisan consensus that we see, you know, whether you're in the Bay Area of California or you're in the Midwest. Um, and that China has to be addressed. So as China's economy continues to deteriorate and the contours of the 2020 election you know, start to come into sharper relief, it's become more apparent, we think, to China that it's in their best interest to de-escalate the conflict sooner rather than later. That doesn't mean we have a, a sweeping agreement on SOE support and, and IP theft, but it seemed like earlier in the year they were willing to roll the dice that if the, enough uh, pain was inflicted on the U.S. economy, particularly the farm-built and the Rust Belt, that would cause Trump and, and, and the American political system to capitulate. But as time's gone on, they're realizing that what lurks around the corner may be a more severe confrontation if the folks like uh, Marco Rubio or Elizabeth Warren or, or Schumer and Pelosi are driving the policy discussions. So one thing that you note is that just simply a, a phase one kind of deal that de-escalates isn't really enough at this point to undo some of the damage of the uncertainty that we've seen around trade. What would it take 
to reverse some of the economic damage that you see uh, being inflicted by how long uh, the trade skirmish has been carried out? Yeah, I think it's at this point it's going to be more comprehensive. So we need phase one, right, where at least you address the uh, trade balance in in ways that have teeth that markets can actually analyze. It's not some vague promise coming out of a White House meeting. And then you need to see some contours of how, whether it's uh, reconciliation panels or some type of WTO, in, internal WTO mechanism, meaning it would be outside the WTO, but just focused on the China and U.S. administration to uh, address ongoing trade conflict. Um, and then from there, I think we would need some Brexit resolution. And then also a better understanding of how the uh, contours of the 2021 policy coming out of D.C. will look like. Um, so it, it's not just a trade reconciliation at this point. Um, it would also be Brexit plus some idea of policy coming from 2021. If we got all three of those, which again at this stage looks unlikely in the next month or so, you could see CapEx bounce back up to roughly 5%, maybe 3 to 5 which is a healthy growth rate, uh, certainly much better than the contraction we're seeing today. But it's you're really hard-pressed to see what would lead to the high single-digit growth rates that we enjoyed very briefly in late 17, early 18, given the, the dramatic slowing of global growth. So, you know, I think for, for the time being, as a market participant, the best you can hope for is de-escalation, a gradual return of uh, investor and CEO confidence, and then some chance to grow at close to 2% again over the next six to nine months. Uh, more than likely, though, we'll be stuck in this 15 to 2% range uh, for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. Troy Gajewski, thank you so much for being with us. Troy Gajewski is partner, co-chief investment officer, and senior portfolio manager at Skybridge Capital. All right, well, the costs for the drug makers uh, associated with the opioid crisis are really starting to add up. We had some more news today, some more fines. Let's get the latest from Max Neeson. Max is a biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So another set of fines coming down, some litigation still out there. Max, what's the latest here? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a settlement for the three largest distributor drug distributors in the country and Teva uh, with two Ohio counties. This is the first federal uh, trial of, you know, trying to assign blame and, and extract uh, damages over the opioid crisis. Basically, what this does is delay a, a trial that, that was would have been potentially um, troublesome or, or led to a, a large verdict. Um, and, and lets them work on a, a larger settlement, works that's still going on. I think four, four other drug makers have already settled with these two counties. It just sort of kicks the can so uh, they can try to come up with a broader resolution that, you know, there's still thousands upon thousands of these suits out there, uh, and they, they still need to work that out. It seemed like they were getting close to a, a deal that might have been valued at as much as $50 billion, but um, that kind of fell apart due to apparently some objections from, from local and county governments. Do we have a sense of how big the settlement has to be to sort of uh, remove the uncertainty? I mean, what's sort of the break, break point of when the settlement uh, doesn't necessarily uh, get received as good news by simply taking away the uncertainty of these opioid cases? You know, I, I think there's, there's still a good amount of room before we get there, just because I think... Um, 
shareholders are just sort of so hungry for relief. When it gets to the point for some of these drug makers that have heavy debt loads that, you know, it starts to make solvency or, or meeting credit covenants a little a little risky, then then you might see a break point. But, but I think there's some wiggle room, especially when it comes to the distributors and, and uh, a company like Johnson & Johnson, which can afford pretty much anything. I think... Uh, You've got a way to go before it would be seen as anything but relief. So, Max, are we at this stage now where we want to get all these thousands of suits together, wrap them all up, and then get all the companies that are on the hook here and then assign blame and get one massive global settlement? Is that kind of the goal here? That, that's exactly the goal. And, and that, that was sort of one of the explicit goals of the judge that they've consolidated all of these suits under, uh, just because, you know, then you actually get money into communities more rapidly. Um, you know, you resolve this uncertainty instead of dragging it out over, you know, years and years in many cases, which there's a lot of variation and um, generally, you know, not not all that productive for anybody involved. So that that's the hope. And, and there still seems to be a chance of it happening. It just isn't going to come this morning is I think some investors were hoping, which is why you see uh, shares of the distributors in, in Teva down today so far. Where is the money going? Is it going to uh, people who had loved ones who died or, or who uh, lost productivity as a result of addictions? Or is it going to municipalities? It, it generally will be going to, to municipalities, although you know it depends on the structure of the settlement. Um, all of that still to be worked out. We'll, we'll see that in the details. Um, you know, I, I think that's really the fascinating thing to think about is, is what comes next. How do you actually direct that money in a productive way? Um, I, I, I hope that that happens, but... Well, what, uh, what, what, what would be productive? I mean, you know, in my opinion, I, I think it would have to be coupled with some, some reforms as to how we actually spend money on opioid treatment in the first place and, and a dramatic increase in investment in making medication-assisted treatment uh, more more available. There's sort of a stigma against it, um, you know, because we have the sort of 12-steps AA-based model where it's abstinence or nothing. And there's been just uh, resistance communities to having things like methadone clinics or, or making it really easy for doctors to, to prescribe and administer that sort of medication. But it works. Um, that's the important thing. It's been shown over and over again to be one of the few things. You know, opioid addiction changes your brain chemistry. You have to account for that. Um, just going to a treatment center and, and you know, just squaring off. You, you need medication. You need help in many cases. And making that more available, making safe injection sites available. These things that, that are, are a little more controversial but more effective, um, that needs to happen. If the money goes there, then, then great. But if it... Um, if it just sort of gets wrapped up, you know, goes to financing other things in, in municipalities, then it won't be quite as effective. So we'll see. Max Neeson, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm sure we'll be talking about this repeatedly as these cases go on. If you've ever wanted to watch someone else uh, watch a movie or a show to see their reaction, uh, this next guest has you covered, and we are so glad to bring in Derek Forbes, Chief Executive Officer of Stardust, which is a very cool name, I have to say, uh, here in our interactive broker studios. Can you just start by saying, what is Stardust? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Stardust is a social media app all about movies and TV shows where you can Talk about the latest episodes you've been watching, find out what people had to say about movies and theaters, and figure out what you want to watch next. 
So who is on, give us a sense of kind of who is on this app and who do you want to be on this app? Yeah, so I guess there's a whole lot of entertainment fans on there, passionate entertainment fans that love um, talking about the shows they've been watching, obsessing about um, the latest episode, you know, think Game of Thrones, people got really into it. They like to talk about what, what happened on the episode, what was going to happen next week, predictions, theories, um, as well as just hearing um, analysis and figuring out what they might like to watch next. So uh, how many people have actually downloaded the app? Yeah, so we're around about 100,000 users at the moment. It's pretty new. We're really just starting to get going with our marketing efforts now and hoping to get that in front of a much larger audience. And I guess that, that there's sort of a flip side to this, which is the more information you get as to what people like, uh, how they talk about films, that it can be monetized, right, that data? Yeah, well, the whole idea of this came from hearing from a lot of film and TV executives that every time they come out with a new title, it's a whole exercise to try and find an audience for that and then reach those people to get it in front of them. What we can do with Stardust is, is help connect new titles with audiences that are actually going to really like it. And so, yes, it's using that data, but we see it as a really benign way of using that data because we're, we're helping people to find content that they're going to really like. Um, one of the, the new features we've just released is really exciting. It's, it uses um, machine learning. And based on all of your ratings of movies and TV shows that you put in, it'll give you a, a set of a few titles every week that you're going to really love watching. Um, and we, we've found that people have been really stoked with some of the recommendations they've had. So how do you work with the content creators, the TV networks, the movie studios? What's your relationship with them? Because I would think they would want to work with you to, again, try to reach an audience. Absolutely, yeah. We have great relationships with a number of the big studios and we're starting to um, work on some initiatives with them in terms of uh, promoting their titles into users of the app and then also helping to to use videos from our app of people talking about titles to, to help promote their movies on other forms of social media and platforms. How do you make money? Right now we're pre-revenue, um, so we don't right now, but we have a plan and it's going to be all about um, getting titles in front of audiences and, and that's very valuable to studios to, to connect their um, their releases with an audience. So we've actually seen uh, some pushback from investors with companies uh, that have an idea mm -hmm. but that don't make money yet. How do investors uh, handle what you're giving them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think with a social media app like this, uh, it's all about the user numbers and it's all about how engaged those users are and how strongly they're retained. If you have eyeballs that are regularly coming back to an app, then there is no question that there is value in that in terms of its ability to draw users' attention to a product. Uh, and, um, and I think that, you know, unlike some of these other horror stories that you've seen recently, there aren't all of the same costs associated where you're kind of like throwing money out the window with every user you get. Right, so this sounds like an advertising-driven model at some point based upon audience. So that, to me, means you're competing against Anybody else who's trying to get eyeballs and advertising and things like that? So, you know, a, a, a Facebook, for example, or, or an Instagram. So how do you kind of position your app versus maybe some of the bigger ones? Yeah, great question. And so Stardust is specialized. So it's because it's all about movies and TV, um, it's a place where you can go and get richer uh, information about the titles that you're interested in um, and connect with people who are also interested in it. And uh, and I think that's, that's at the heart of the draw. Also... We've done a really good job of making it anti-troll 
And so if you want to go there and talk about The Mandalorian when that show comes out in a few weeks' time and follow it episode by episode, you can do so in a place where you're not going to get like attacked or have like random people posting hateful comments. We're going to keep the conversation about the show. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Derek Forbes. I really appreciate it. Uh, Derek Forbes, Chief Executive Officer of Stardust, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.